Uh, we're in a series that started 1st of June. It's going to end the end of the July. We, we, it's, our summer's almost over. It's hard to believe that. We go to children's camp this week, and for us, summer's over. Some, uh, I think some of the schools go start back like next week or soon after that. Uh, others take a little bit longer, but I mean, it goes by so fast, and uh, it's been a great summer for us. We've got one more fantastic week left, but in this series this summer, it's entitled, It Begins. And what begins, what we're talking about is the beginning of the Christian movement or the church. And we're in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 to see all of this. And the thing that I've shared with you throughout this series and what I really want to hit home is that no story matters more than the story of Jesus. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe that in all of life, no story will ever matter more than the story of Jesus. That it's the most important story of your life. It's the most important story of human life. It's the story of Jesus. And, you know, we, we've seen in, in these, you know, we've seen the Holy Spirit come with all that power and presence and, and, and impact the people. You know, he filled them. They began speaking in languages uh, that they didn't know. And all the masses began to hear the gospel. And then Peter, we saw last week, began to, stood up and began to preach. And today we're going to come to really the heart of the message that he preached. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 28. We're going to focus on 22, 23, and 24 the most. And uh, here's what I want you to see from the message today, that the story of Jesus centers on the fact that Jesus was crucified on account of our sin and raised back to life by the power of God. It centers on this fact. He was crucified for our sin. He was raised back to life by the power of God. And I'm going to share two things with you today. I'm going to talk to you about the message and the meaning. And we begin, first of all, with the message. We're talking about basically the apostolic message. That's a fancy term, the message of those first guys, Peter and all those guys that were Jesus, the apostles, the rest of the apostles that came later like Paul. This is the central message. This is the message of the entire New Testament. It is the message of the church, always has been, and it always should be. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And he did. And you're going to be my witnesses. And they started witnessing. And it'll begin in Jerusalem. And it did. It'll go to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What is it they're going to witness of? What are they going to share? Well, we're going to look. And we're going to find out. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Now, he's talking to all the masses. Thousands of people had gathered. Remember, this is Pentecost. You know, it's the time of celebration. A lot of folks had come about, you know, 50 days earlier, you know, a couple of months earlier to celebrate Passover. If you were a Jew, I've shared this with you before, you needed to make the Passover trip once in your life. A lot of them would just stay because it was a long, expensive trip to do Pentecost before they went home. So there were thousands of people from all over the world that were Jewish. Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. The word attested means to be made public. New NIV, New International Version says accredited. The New Living Translation says that, uh, I think it says that he was uh, pronounced or that, that he was, uh, that they promoted him in some capacity. It, it speaks of sometimes what they would do in, in politicians, endorsed. That's what it says. He was attested to you, endorsed, made public to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, he, he, not all of those people there obviously knew of Jesus. He didn't do things in front of every one of them because they came from all over the world, but he's saying in general, publicly, Jesus did some amazing things right in the middle of you. He called them miracles, wonders, signs. The word miracles comes from a word, uh, we get our term, the idea of powers, the basic general word of power. It speaks of something of raw ability. He said he did these things, the miracles that only God can do. Jesus did them 
They were wonders, they were signs. Those are terms that speak of the divine, supernatural events that, that marvel. All these things, these miracles, they were wonders, they were signs that pointed to Jesus in some unique way. He did it in front of all of you in Mark chapter 2. Jesus was teaching in the house, and they dropped this guy, you know, through the roof. He was paralyzed. When I, when I teach this passage, I usually say, just picture a guy whose back's been broken, you know. Ain't nothing you can do. They dropped him right in front of Jesus. They're thinking, man, if anybody can heal this guy, it's Jesus. It's a lot of faith to think he can do what only God can do. Jesus looks at the guy, and because of his faith and their faith, he says, your sins have been forgiven. That's great. He didn't come to have his sins forgiven. He came to be healed. But the people were thinking, man, he can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. That's true. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus, knowing what was in their heart, said, what's going to be easier to say? Is it easier just to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. How do you prove it? How do you prove your sins are forgiven? But if he says you got to get up and walk, man, he's got to do it. So Jesus says to them, so that you will know the Son of Man, that is me, has the power even to forgive sin, a power only God has. He looked at that dude and said, pick up your mat and go home. And he did. And Jesus did in front of them what only God can do. He did countless miracles like this. That all points to Jesus as being someone unique. Verse 23, this man delivered over. The word delivered over is the word for betrayal. Judas betrayed him. Delivered over by, get this, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now we have in this verse a seeming contradiction. A kind of paradox. How on the one hand you have God making a decision to do something, and yet humanity being held guilty or accountable for doing it. So let's look at these phrases, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The word predetermined means to separate and to make an assignment. It's the concept of a decision about how things should be. It's something that, just like it says, it's been determined, it's set in stone, it's good. The word plan means something you plan to do. It's a common word. Think about it this way. Some of you, when this service is over, you probably have plans. You probably have to go to lunch someplace. You probably already have something in mind. You know how it's going to go. The husband's going to say, baby, where do you want to go? And she's going to say, I don't care. Because they never care until you start listing the restaurants. And then they care. See, in their mind, the wife has a predetermined plan to where you're going. She'll reveal it to you as she chooses. She has the foreknowledge that you don't have. Yeah, that's what that means, except God is not quite like your wife when he does it, okay? God, obviously, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was betrayed, said, God, I want to do your will. Not your will be done. Your, not my will be done, but your will be done. What was the will of God? That he go to the cross? It was always that way. This wasn't, this wasn't happenstance. This wasn't God saying, all right, Jesus, you're going to earth. We're going to play this by ear. Always from the beginning, God had planned, and yet still we're accountable. You know, Judas betrayed him. He chose to do that. God didn't make him. When it says that he was nailed to the cross, he was crucified by the Jews. They made that decision. Not all of those people per se, but the Jewish leaders. They gave him to godless men. The godless men were the Romans. The Jews hated the Romans. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and defeat the Romans. And what did they do? They gave the Messiah to the Romans. And they killed him. They murdered him. That's what the word death means, to be murdered. 
You did this. You weren't forced. It was on their own volition. Judas, we're told by both Luke and, and John that Satan entered Judas's heart. God didn't make him do it. He gave it to Satan. It's not a contradiction. Both of them, you, you may not understand it perfectly. I get this. Even, you know, I, I got, logic says there's something there, this little mystery, but it's okay. God doesn't work in contradictions. Think, remember when I, uh, back in May, I went to Genesis chapter 2 to preach about husbands and wife, and I said, God made the woman to compliment the man. He didn't make Eve to contradict the man. The woman wasn't to contradict the man. Now, some of you guys are thinking, my wife contradicts me all the time. You're looking at me thinking that right now. Don't look down writing those notes. But that's after sin. After sin came into the world, yeah, the wife contradicts you all the time because you're wrong all the time. But that's not why she was created. To compliment. You're different. You're distinct. Men and women are different. You're different, but you compliment. That's what this is. There are two things that are different, but they both go together. They compliment. But that's not all. Verse 24 says this, but God. I'm doing a series in next January entitled, But God. Things happen, but God does something about it. But God raised him up again. The word raised up means to be brought alive. It means to be reanimated, to live. He put an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. The death, it was impossible for death with all its power to hold Jesus. The word power is the same kind of basic word as the word miracle earlier. It's a word that means raw ability. Death had power, but not enough to hold Jesus. God put an end to the agony of death. That's an unusual phrase. The agony of death speaks of the pain of a woman in childbirth. It's, 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 it's difficult to kind of, there's a lot of debate about what it means. The NIV says that he had freedom from the agony of death. The New Living Translation says he released from the horrors of death. So it's something like this. Now, I understand. Listen, as a man, I have no idea about the pain of birth, so I'm not mansplaining anything. That's a new phrase I learned. What to be. I had to explain it to the 830 service because they didn't know what mansplaining means, so I had to, I had to pastor explain it to them. You know. But I understand. So I don't know this personally, but, but we understand. The, the agony of birth is a great pain. And, and, and it's a suffering. But when, when the child is born, you know, in essence, the suffering comes to an end for something that is greater. Like that. So you get that. <laughs> Excellent timing. Who their child is. Congratulations. That was amazing. I see the child. Good job. Thumbs up. On that. That's good. Do that. If you do that, say for the next service and do that again. That'll work really well. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Children, suffering, death, all that stuff. So... The death of Christ, there was the agony. Not the whole time he was dead, but on the cross until he said it is finished. But the resurrection when God raised him back to life, that put an end to the suffering not only of his death, but all death. It made possible something that didn't exist before, the freedom from death. The resurrection did that. Now, in, in verse 25 through 28, Paul goes to one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. And, and next week, I'm going to deal more with David and Jesus and all that. But in that Psalm, basically David is saying, Lord, because I'm a godly man, could you release me from what death holds? That didn't hold for David, but Peter says, that's exactly what happened for Jesus. Because who, who he is, God in the flesh, he was released from the power of death. This is the apostolic message. This is the basic message of our faith. That Jesus died and was resurrected and brought back to life. That is the message. Now, what I would like to share with you, if I may, is the meaning of the message. 
And to understand the meaning, we're going to take a journey. We're going to go back to the very, very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And God creates us. He creates us male and female. Now, I'm going to preach about this in October. But to create male and female, he, he created us distinct with intentionality and purpose. At no point was God ever confused about how he created us male and female. Okay, God has never has been or will be confused about any of that. So he created us in his image. And the image of God speaks of, you know, something substantive. In some way, we're like him. Something functional. We have a function. But it speaks of relationship. And he created a relationship. And, and before Eve came on the scene, he took Adam. And in chapter 2, Adam's in the Garden of Eden. And he said, Adam, you're, you're in charge of this garden. And he says this, you can eat of any tree you want. I don't know how many trees were there. Let's just for the sake of argument say there's a thousand trees in the garden. You can have any tree, anything from any tree you want, but one, just one. You can't eat from the tree in the middle. Because if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. You're going to die. Now, not just physical death. The totality of death is spiritual, physical. It's a process. But you're going to die. Now, notice he didn't say there are a thousand trees. You can't have any of them but one. He says you can have all of them but one. Now, why, why did God do that? I mean, why, why, why did he do that? Just think for a moment. Well, regardless of what was going to happen, Adam was going to love God and serve God and worship God. But you know what Adam couldn't be? Adam could never be faithful to God unless he could be unfaithful. Unless that tree was there, Adam had no choice. He was not free. He didn't have freedom. He was not a free moral agent. That tree gave Adam the ability to prove his devotion to God. Think about it. Once again, let's go back to marriage. God created Adam and Eve. Now, you know, Adam, Adam loved Eve, you know, and, and, you know, they got along, all that stuff. But you, you know what Adam could never be to Eve? Faithful. He couldn't be faithful to him because there was no chance to be unfaithful. Think about it this way. When God created Eve, he didn't create her sister, Ava. And there wasn't, oh, the younger sister, you know. There wasn't that. This was not a romance novel. There was just, there was no temptation. So Adam never had to worry about being faithful to Eve, but to God he did. And, and, and always, for us to be free, truly free, we have to be able to rebel against God. And that's what happened. Chapter 3. You get into Genesis, and there comes the serpent. And we know from the New Testament, and we know from other scriptures, that Satan entered into the serpent. The serpent came to Eve. And he said, man, oh man, tell me what's going on. And she said, I can't eat from the tree of the middle, or we'll die. And Satan said, no, you won't die. He said, here's the problem, Eve. If you eat from that tree, you'll be just like God. You'll be just like. God. And there you have the temptation of life. The basic temptation of all of life is to be the God of our own life. That's the temptation. Sometimes I'll ask people, what was the temptation in the Garden of Eden? They'll give me all sorts of answers. I'm like, just read the text. It tells you. The temptation was to be the God of your own life. That's what all sin is. All of our rebellion against God is that we want to be in charge of our life. We want to be. And when we reject the king, we reject God, we have to pay the price for that. I mean, when you rebel against the king, the king gets to decide what happens when you lose. You don't. We just celebrated July 4th. That's Independence Day. It's also called Treason Day. 
It's the day a group of little boys signed their name to a document, and they all committed treason and shrugged the rest of us in with them. And if they were going to lose that battle of the, of the, the war, they were all going to die, and they knew it when they signed that document because King George, they were saying, King George, you're done. We're kicking you out of America. And when we rebel against God, we say, God, you're done. We're kicking you away from being the God of our life. And that's the rebellion. And they just kept rebelling. In chapter 4, they rebel. You get to chapter 6, verse 5, and it says, The thoughts and actions of men were only evil all the time. We were evil. Humanity was evil all the time. So God said, that's enough. I'm going to destroy humanity, but... I want to give man a second chance. And so he picked Noah. Noah didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it, but he found favor with God. And God preserves humanity through Noah. Was humanity grateful? No. Humanity started right back sinning again. You get to the 11th chapter of Genesis, and we're sinning all over the place. I mean, all of mankind is just in rebellion against God. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God takes a man, one of those rebels, named Abram. We call him Abraham. And he said to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, he made this promise, his covenant with Abraham. This promise dominates the rest of the Old Testament. It dominates the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Every nation will eventually be blessed through you. We understand that from this side of the cross, meaning I'm going to send someone to save the world. I mean, Jesus is the way he blessed the whole world. And the rest of the Old Testament, he gives proof of that. The rest of the Old Testament is about getting to Jesus. I mean, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you got Joshua. You got Joseph, you got Moses, you got David. They're all getting us to Jesus. Man, you got the law, you got tabernacle, you got temple, all getting us to Jesus. There was something else they had. They had a sacrificial system. What God did is said, look, because of your sin, you got to do something about it. You deserve to die. They all deserve to die for their sin. But if they died for their sin, then they were through. I mean, if you died for your sin, one sin, you're one and done, you're over. So God said there's a sacrificial system, and a system is gives you the chance to repent of your sin and to be forgiven. But understand, it doesn't mean you're no longer sinners. Oh, they're still sinners. The sacrificial system did nothing, but here's what the sacrificial system did. It pointed to a sacrifice that was to come that would do what it could not do. The book of Hebrews. I love the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews basically puts an end to the idea that there's any other religion but following Jesus. It ends the concept that Judaism is still a viable way to God. Chapter 10, verse 3, here's what it says. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. You cannot have your sins removed by sacrifices. It's impossible. So along comes Jesus. And Matthew and Luke tell us something, that Jesus has this unique nature about him. He's not just a guy who's really holy. He's God in the flesh. And they both tell us about the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. That's important, that he be fully God and fully man. And here's what we need to know, that his virgin conception and birth assures the nature of Jesus. He is both God and man fully and completely. He's not half God, half man. That's pagan. He's 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man. His virgin conception and birth guarantee that so that he is fully human like you and I with the capacity to sin. The only difference between Jesus and us is he doesn't have the nature of sin. He's not stained with the sin of Adam. He is the second Adam. Jesus, like Adam, was not born with the nature to sin because God is his father. He wasn't passed on. Some people struggle with the idea of being born with the nature to sin. 
If you don't think humans have the nature to sin, if you don't think that's born within us, go down to the preschool area in Wombaland and work with him for two hours. None of those kids are guilty of sin. None of the preschoolers have the capacity to sin, yet every one of them is full of the devil, and you know it too. Some of you are giving us like three or four kids, four kids some of you are giving us. That's the, and it's not adding, they multiply per family member how that's, you know, oh man. No, children and special needs people, they're, they're not guilty of sin in the sense they commit sin, but they have this sinful nature within them, but that, God doesn't hold them accountable for that. The point is this, Jesus, Jesus is the only human to never sin and to know no sin. He is the only human to have never sinned and know no sin until something happened. He never sinned. He didn't know anything about sin until something happened. So Paul tells us what that is. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he gives us his understanding of the gospel, here's what he says to us. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I mean, he died for our sins. They became his. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He died for us. And he took our place. And then God raised him back to life. And Peter saw him and others saw him. So that brings us to where we are with Peter. He's preaching to all these people. There's chaos everywhere. You know that, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus, had, been, Jesus had been around a few, just a few days earlier. I mean, they, 50 days earlier, they crucified Jesus. And then, you know, his body's gone. And everybody's wondering, what, what happened to Jesus? And the apostles are saying, well, we've seen him. And for 40 days, they saw him. And, and, you know, and now here it is, you know, 10 days after he ascended. And the Holy Spirit's come. And there's all these Jews, thousands of them there for Pentecost. And they're hearing the story of Jesus in their language, and Peter begins to speak to them. And as he begins to speak to them, he shares with them the apostolic message, which has two key, two key points. It deals with the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what it means at the cross. And here's what he's telling them. At the cross, Jesus died in our place and on our behalf. He died in our place. He was our substitute and our sacrifice. He, he was a substitute for us. Some people don't like the idea of the substitutionary death of Jesus, but he had to be our substitute. Otherwise, you and I still have to pay for that sin. When you become a follower of Jesus, you don't have to pay for your sin. He paid it. He was the substitute. He was also our sacrifice. He took the sins upon him and dealt with the penalty. He did that so our sin could be defeated. And then he was buried, and then we see at the resurrection, Jesus defeated the power of sin, death, and hell. God raised him back to life, and he defeated sin had no power over him. He defeated death, had no power over him. He defeated hell, had no power over him, and has no power over us in Christ Jesus. That's the message. And that's what Peter is sharing with them. They're sharing with them, this is the message of Jesus. You understand, there's just chaos as Peter gets up to tell them this. Now, people were wondering what happened to Jesus. Understand the scenario. There's unbelievable numbers of Jews there. To celebrate everything. Jesus was a minor story through a lot of that for most people. And they heard bits and pieces here and there of what happened. But now all of a sudden, they start hearing about this Jesus and they're wondering what happened. Now, some people would say that the disciples had stole the body of Jesus. But you understand, how would the disciples possibly do that? If Peter and the disciples stole the body of Jesus, they would not be there. The Romans would be trying to kill them. In fact, no Jews would be there because the Romans would have committed a slaughter. In Matthew chapter 27... The religious leaders are worried that they might steal his body. So they go to Pilate and they say, man, those guys might steal the body of Jesus. 
do something about it. So Pilate put his seal over that rock. Nobody break that rock. Nobody open that tomb. Or man, or I'm going to kill you. And then he put some Roman guards, tough Roman guards out there. And if they messed with those Roman guards, those Roman guards were going to kill them all. So how are these guys going to go take the body of Jesus? Chapter 28 tells us that the Roman guards, the body's gone. They're not going to Pilate because Pilate will kill them for failing to do their job. They go to the Jewish leader saying, we don't know what happened. And the Jewish leader says, here's what we want you to do. We want you to just tell people that they came and saw the body of Jesus. They're going to like, no, we're not going to tell them that. It makes us look bad. They'll kill us. And they're saying, nobody's going to know or care. Here's a ton of money. You do that. And if the governor, that's Pilate, hears about it, we'll make things right with him. They had no choice. And so, you know, it's not like people were flocking to the tomb to see what happened. Just a rumor began to spread. Evidently, it didn't get to Pilate because here's what we know. Pilate, from other sources, was a cruel and vicious and vindictive man. And if he thought for one minute somebody violated his order not to open that tomb and anybody attacked his soldiers, in which case his soldiers better be dead already for having defended that tomb, he'd have slaughtered the Jews. He wouldn't have cared, Christian or not. He'd have slaughtered as many as he could. And I guarantee he'd have gone after those disciples. And here was Peter. Because they didn't steal the body. And people knew they didn't steal the body. And he's telling them what happened. Besides that, why would they steal the body? There was nothing to gain by it. Plus, you have the Holy Spirit. People were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people think, well, you know, they were expecting the Holy Spirit to come. They weren't expecting to hear the story in their own language. Nobody was expecting, I mean, I may have been expecting the Holy Spirit. I wasn't expecting to speak a language I didn't know, which is basically every language but English, and I barely speak that. Here all these people were. So Peter begins to tell them what's going on. In the midst of telling them all the stuff that's going on, he tells them it's all about Jesus. It's so simple. It's so simple. People heard the gospel. The story of Jesus. They heard about his death and resurrection. That's what they heard. That's what he told them. And we're going to see in two weeks, after we finish with Peter's message, 3,000 of them became believers. You understand? 3,000 people who woke up thoroughly Jewish, going to the temple to celebrate Pentecost, having no clue about Jesus or not caring about Jesus. By the time they went to bed that night, their life had changed. And why had their life changed? Because the story of Jesus. They heard that he died for their sin. And they heard that God raised him back to life. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, they heard that all they had to do was repent of their sin and believe. And they would be forgiven of all the rebellion against God. That's the message. It's the only message we need. It's the only message that matters is the message of the apostles. No story matters more than the story of Jesus. It just doesn't. As I shared with you at the beginning of this message, the story of Jesus centers around a fact, the fact that he was crucified on account of your sin and my sin. And the fact that God 
by his own power, raised him back to life. So that if we'll trust Jesus, all that sin will be completely forgiven. So that if we trust Jesus, we will have a brand new life with God in Christ. If we will only trust Jesus. So why don't you trust Jesus? What are you waiting for? Some of you have been thinking about it. But what, so what more do you need? It's not going to get any easier. It's not going to get any simpler. There's nothing to add. So if you have never trusted Christ to be your Savior, why don't you right there where you are at this very second, give your life to him. Why don't you ask Jesus to forgive you for your sin? He did that on the cross. He went there, but you've got to ask him to forgive you for it. He already paid the price. Just ask him to forgive you for it. And then give your life to him. And he'll save you. And then in just a moment, some of us will be standing here. And ladies, there'll be another, at least one more woman up here. And if you want to talk to one of them, it's fine. You can say, I want to give my life to Christ. Some of you, your followers of Jesus, what more do you need? Quit making the story of Jesus so complicated. Quit adding junk to it that doesn't matter. You have friends. You have family. You have people in your life who need Jesus. You have the story. It's not complicated. He died for them and was raised back to life for them. So when are you going to tell them that? When are you going to tell them the story of Jesus? So when you leave this place today, whatever it is that you need, whatever it is that has to be done in your life, know this. You need to leave knowing that story. That he died for you. And God raised you back to life. And that needs to be the only story that ever matters. So Father, we come before you in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to this wonderful account of Peter doing the amazing sharing of the story of Jesus. And it's so simple. It's not complicated at all. Some need to trust that story. They need to trust Jesus. They need to give their life to Christ. Help them do it, even as I speak. Help them turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And all of us, Father, who know you, through Jesus, need to tell others. When are we going to wake up and realize the story we have is so simple, it's so beautiful? When are we going to wake up and share the truth? In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and you come?